All right, well, obviously, we're going to continue on in our study here, our little journey through church history. And um, I'm going to quickly summarize some of the, the points that we talked about last week, just to, we, we've kind of had to break off um, uh, midstream, really, in, in some of the, the points of the study we were talking about uh, last week. And so I want to kind of catch us up a little bit. Again, I don't want to spend too much time on things we've already talked about, but we did spend some time looking at a timeline, and really just this was to to give us a sense of where we are now in the flow of church history. Uh, We kind of thought about this from the standpoint of Pentecost being our starting point in AD 30. Pushing forward a couple of years, you have these seminal events like the stoning of Stephen and this massive wave of initial persecution that breaks out uh, amongst the the people in Jerusalem, the believers in Jerusalem. You have the gospel spreading as a result of this persecution out from Jerusalem to the surrounding region of Judea and Samaria. You have the conversion of Saul. All this taking place within two years after Pentecost. Then you flow from there and you get into a few years out where you have this seminal event and moment with Peter and Cornelius where the gospel is taken to a a real Gentile and more importantly the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius and his household in the same manner that it fell at Pentecost, really just marking God's seal that this is, the gospel is for the Gentiles. The Gentiles are being grafted in. They are being brought in as the people of God. A very major uh, sort of shift in the mindset and in the the understanding of God's redemptive purpose uh, was taking place there about eight to ten years after Pentecost. So you can just kind of get a sense of, of the flow of time. A lot's happening in this eight to ten year period in, in Jerusalem and ministry and the gospel going out and persecution and those Jews that were gathered there for Pentecost that spread out and maybe go back to their home regions uh, all throughout that, er- that region and, and throughout sort of that region of the Roman Empire. But all this is taking place in this first ten years and then you kind of get out a little bit further and we saw this in our past study how the church really begins to move its focus from Jerusalem to Antioch and that becomes a launching point for Paul's missionary journeys um, you have Paul and Barnabas uh, beginning uh, their ministry together in Antioch during this time period. Shortly thereafter, you have Paul and Barnabas commissioned and then sent out to the churches in Asia Minor, taking the gospel to that region uh, and, and seeing great fruit and great ministry there among uh, Jews and Gentiles, but primarily Gentiles. Then you have uh, getting further out. We talked about this for several weeks, the Jerusalem Council, this uh, pivotal event uh, in the life and history of the church, not just for the first first thirty years, but obviously for all the church, because it's where the gospel was clarified, was was sort of defined intently in light of the um, the really the, the 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 heresy of of faith plus works, basically of of adding to the saving gospel of of, of, of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone adding to it circumcision, obedience to the law from the Judaizers. And this was just a settled event there in a major pivotal moment. Then we move forward in time and we see how uh, you get out a couple, uh, really 20 years from that, that starting point at Pentecost. You have Paul and Barnabas um, parting ways. We talked about that quite a bit last week um, on, uh, just prior to them launching out on a second missionary journey. Paul takes Silas with him on this journey, and it's at this time that you start seeing Paul. Paul wrote Galatians uh, shortly after the Jerusalem Council in 8049, but this is when you start to see him writing to, for example, the Thessalonians, the Thessalonian letters written during this time. You move forward and you get to Paul's third missionary journey, and you start seeing more writing during this time period where Paul writes the Corinthian letters and the letters to the Romans in 8053-56. 
further out in time, and this is getting beyond where we are now in terms of our, our core study, but just to kind of give you the sweep of the timeline again, 56 to 58, Paul's arrested in Jerusalem. He appears, he has these trials, and these trials, it's really interesting when you look at them, they're very similar to the trials that Jesus experienced. He goes before several different officials, um, Felix and Festus being the two Roman officials, uh, governors there in Caesarea, Roman governors, and also before King Agrippa. Um, and these trials based upon trumped-up charges. It's a similar you know, kind of experience that Paul had as what Christ had in his, his trials. Um, then you move forward and you get to AD 59 to 60, and you have the, sort of the conclusion of Acts where Paul is on this journey to Rome. And it's a perilous journey. There's a shipwreck. Luke gives tremendous detail of this shipwreck, but it's a, a very uh, um, significant event on, on, en route to, um, to Rome. And then finally Paul ends up in Rome, AD 60 to 62. He's under house arrest. This is his first arrest, his first imprisonment in Rome. It's, a, it's different from his final imprisonment, which ultimately uh, is consummated in his execution and his martyrdom. This is where he has more freedom. Uh, people are able to come and visit him. He has more freedom of movement. And it's also during this period of time where we see him writing what is known as the prison epistles of Ephesians, um, Philippians, Philemon, and Colossians. So this just kind of gives you the sweep of, of Acts in a, in a very quick way. There is this uh, break point where you get beyond the time of the actual uh, writing of Luke and Acts, and you have references uh, in other portions of Scripture and as well as other um, historical sources of kind of a, a fourth journey, if you will, or a fourth mission that Paul undertakes uh, prior to his final arrest and imprisonment and execution between AD 62 and 66. And we'll look at that uh, further down the line. But this just kind of gives you um, a little bit of a, a break point beyond where we're still dealing with or, or, or understanding kind of the ministry uh, of the Apostle Paul. So that takes us now to this second missionary journey. And of course, we talked about this at length uh, last week, um, this, this prelude that you have here where you have this this incident between Paul and Barnabas and their disagreement over whether or not to take John Mark on this second missionary journey. And of course, uh, Mark uh, left the first mission with Paul and Barnabas, and the indication is that he left very prematurely. He didn't leave under, uh, under duress or any need that was taking him away. He left as a result of some uh, weakness of character, some um, lack of perseverance, uh, something of that nature. And so Paul and Barnabas disagree over this. And we talked quite a bit <clears throat> last week about how this is a wonderful example for us to recognize how uh, brothers in Christ can disagree and it can be a fruitful thing. It can be a, a needful thing. It can be a thing that God uses greatly um, and that we need to be mindful of, of what disagreement amongst brothers should look like and really what it shouldn't look like. And so we talked quite a bit about that last week. Um, we looked at the purpose last week as well. We saw how there was a purpose of fellowship. The Apostle Paul wanted to go and see the people in Asia Minor. Is really just tracking back through those same cities and, and visiting those same uh, believers and churches that he and Barnabas um, uh, founded, those, those people that they fathered in the faith, if you will, on that first journey. Obviously, they were under duress and different um, degrees of persecution for their faith, both from Jews and from Greeks. Um, and so he wanted to go back, and he really just says in 1536, I love this, it says, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. I, I love that that is a, a marker there that Luke records for us because it just demonstrates the heart of Paul. He wanted to go and see how these people were doing. There's a pastoral element there 
uh, in the heart of Paul, not just uh, missionary zeal and let's go and reach people for the, you know, for the kingdom of God and then move on. There was a pastoral shepherding discipleship element, which leads to the second purpose of discipleship, um, wanting to strengthen the churches is the, is the phrase that you see repeated a few times, wanting to go back and strengthen the believers there. And then there was this focus on leadership where um, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas on the first journey, and then, of course, Paul and, and Silas and other um, companions traveling with him along the way, uh, really placed an emphasis on leadership. This wasn't the kind of thing where um, it, it was all about Paul at all, or all about Paul and his traveling companions, or these itinerant preachers that were coming through. The idea was to go in and to, and to uh, take the gospel to these people and to establish local communities of faith and churches and local churches that would be able to then grow and thrive and then expand the gospel in that region and that community and see the kingdom of God expanded. And that would only come as a result of them having some type of leadership structure in place that could ensure sound doctrine and ensure that you know, effective administration of the, the needs of the, of the church and the ministry would be undertaken. And so there was that, that element that was part and parcel to Paul's ministry. And I think it just highlights kind of a, a certain um, model for mission work that I think is, is really uh, compelling and important to recognize from the scriptures that, that is sometimes, in some ways different than a lot of other, uh, a lot of uh, missionary models you might see um, in, in existence where it's, it's not as oriented toward local church, local leadership development, people who are part of the community, uh, indigenous to the area, who, who, who become part and parcel to the building of the church in that community. And that was, that was the kind of the mission philosophy, the mission model that uh, we see here developing in terms of their purpose of the second journey. We also looked briefly last time, too, at the providence that was uh, exhibited in, or demonstrated or testified to by Luke um, with the Macedonian call. Um, you see this, how this really was uh, unique in that it was not what th- th- this, this expansion of, this geographic expansion of the, the trip was not what Paul had initially planned. Um, but we see in, in Acts chapter 16 um, that, they, that he had a vision, Paul had a vision of a man saying, come help us in Macedonia, a man in Macedonia saying, come help us. And so they made their way uh, over there, and it really, it really ended up taking them from this initial region that they had in their first missionary journey. You see that region of Asia Minor, this is a kind of a map of the first missionary journey. And so you have this region of concentration here where that initial ministry took place, and that was, that was where the Apostle Paul intended to kind of um, spend his time on the second trip. Again, it was focused on encouraging the, the believers, seeing how they were doing. So it, the implication there is he's going back to these people where there was already an established relationship. But this Macedonian call and the providence of God and the work of God led them to a much broader Reach, and you can see how it went from this region right here in Asia Minor to all the way over uh, in this whole area of Macedonia and Greece, and really the gateway to the European continent. And so, this is a really when you think about the the work of God in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, you kind of have this as one of these these uh, mileposts, these mile markers in in this historical progress, where you know the gospel just expands even further um, as a result of this this Macedonian call. And so, comparing kind of the first journey to the second journey, you know, in the first journey, uh, and really the second journey was intended to kind of mimic the first journey, but in the first journey, 
You may recall they, they went to about nine different cities, uh, covered about five different regions, uh, covered about 1,600 miles. The miles are a little bit debatable. It depends upon exactly how they traveled, but there's estimates anywhere between 13, 1,400 all the way up to 1,600 miles. About 50 days of just travel uh, and about a year or a year and a half on the journey in total. So that's kind of the, the extent or the expanse of the first journey. But the second journey, as you can just kind of see from even this map, uh, much bigger, over 20 cities visited, uh, about 15 regions covered, about 3,000 miles traveled, uh, over 100 travel days, and about three, uh, just under three and a half years of time spent. So much bigger, much longer, much more geographic coverage uh, on, this, on this second journey. Uh, we talked very briefly about this uh, last time, too, the people. Um, you know, it's interesting to kind of take note of the fact that, um, that Luke kind of highlights different people uh, along the way and, and not necessarily a lot of information given as to uh, you know, who they are uh, beyond the certain testimony that's given in, in a particular chapter or a particular place that Paul's visiting, but really just highlighting the fact that the ministry of the Apostle Paul and, and Barnabas, the ministry of, of Silas, the ministry of the, the other companions that were along with him at various times, it was about people. It wasn't just about places. It wasn't just about going to these different cities to take the gospel. It was really about these people. And, of course, we have Timothy. Timothy is introduced to us um, in, on this second missionary journey. Uh, Paul Paul identifies Timothy early on. He has, he has someone, he's someone of, of good reputation. Uh, he identifies uh, Timothy early on as, as a, a, a leader that he wants to develop. And you see this kind of initiating on this second missionary journey. We see Luke um, introduced in the first person at this point on the second missionary journey. So Luke, as the writer of this chronicle of the history of the church, is using second person to, to describe you know, them, they, he, the, you know, n- not referring to himself. But in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 to 10, Luke begins to refer to himself, we, us. And you, and you see Luke kind of joins the, the mission team at that point. And so you kind of see this interesting development even in the, in the writing of the text itself where Luke becomes uh, a part of this actual ministry on the ground. Um, you see Lydia introduced as uh, someone who uh, comes to faith in Christ. Uh, she prevails upon Paul and his, his team to stay with her in Philippi, um, uh, just de- uh, develops a, re- a relationship of service with them, a woman of reputation, a, a merchant, uh, um, someone who is identified there as a, a, someone who responds to the gospel. I think when you see these different examples of people, what you also see is you see how they just respond to the gospel. It's not just a response of faith, but it's a response of service. It's like an identification with the people of God that manifests itself in overt acts of service and, and how, can we, how can we help in this mission kind of thing. The Philippian jailer, we see that experience take place on this journey uh, where the Apostle Paul and uh, Silas are arrested and put in jail. And then uh, by, by sort of a miraculous event, the doors are opened up at night as they're worshiping, and uh, the jailer freaks out, thinks they're going to all leave, and they end up staying there. He's about to kill himself, and they stop him, um, and of course, leads to his conversion, his faith in Christ, and, and we see this great testimony of, of, of this man coming to faith in Christ. You see Jason uh, introduced to us, this, this figure who 
Um, and we'll, we'll see a little bit of him uh, in Acts chapter 17 as we talk about that a little more in depth today. This, this figure who uh, we find out that he, um, he gave quarter. He's kind of a, he's kind of a, a, a mirror to Lydia. He, he took uh, uh, Paul and Silas in in Thessalonica. Um, and when the Jews rile up the people in Thessalonica to, to um, take them, take Paul and Silas uh, captive and, and they're, they're agitated, they're jealous of, of these two men who are turning the world upside down, it says there in Acts chapter 17. They, they are, they're looking for them. They, they, they know they had heard that Jason had given them quarter. So they seize Jason and all we hear about from Jason, we don't hear from Jason, we just know that they take him, they drag him out into the, into the square and, and they're, they're sort of interrogating him. It's basically, a, you, you get the picture of, a, of this very threatening situation, um, very volatile scenario where Jason could be you know, the one who receives the brunt of this because they, they, um, they'd already, Paul and Silas had already left and, and moved on. But, uh, but he had to pay a fine, basically. The Romans had to make him pay a fine, and then he was released. So just an interesting little interlude there about this, this man who we don't really hear from again, but he was a pivotal person in the, the story of the, the, the church, the growth of the church, um, had to basically potentially suffer under persecution um, in a profound way, was ultimately released. But this is an interesting uh, account. And you have Priscilla and Aquila, their fellow tent makers in Corinth with Paul. Um, they come to faith in Christ. Another interesting uh, thing that we, that we learn about Priscilla and Aquila, again, I'm just, I'm just skimming through this very quickly to kind of get back to what we're going to focus in on today. But um, these are two that you, you may remember, but they, uh, you have the account of Apollos, um, this, this man who is uh, described as eloquent, mighty in the scriptures, uh, bold. Um, you have, he, he's kind of portrayed with this profile of being a, um, a great speaker, a persuasive, eloquent man, someone who had a, a sort of a presence in front of people is kind of the, the idea that you get there. Um, but Priscilla and Aquila come alongside him because he really only understood the, the, the baptism of John. And so his, his theology, his, his understanding of the gospel was not complete. And so Priscilla and Aquila come alongside him and instruct him and counsel him. And I love that account because you have this man. And in this particular, obviously it's no different now, but in this particular culture, um, that, was, that kind of profile of person would receive a lot of adoration and a lot of praise and a lot of recognition. Anyone who could speak eloquently in front of people and make arguments, I mean, that was, you were like a rock star. You were like a, a celebrity, if you will. And yet we see uh, Apollos having these gifts and yet receiving instruction very humbly from Priscilla and Aquila. So I think it's just another neat little, a little uh, personal uh, testimony there of, of really ministry, with God's people, among God's people, between God's people, um, that, that is just a, a really a, a beautiful portrait of, of how the people of God are to work with one another, interact with one another, counsel one another, exhort one another, encourage one another. You just see these different great pictures of that when you kind of just take a survey of some of the people that are highlighted on this second journey. Then you get to the power of this journey, and again, I'm, I'm using these, these terms, uh, not sure if this is the, well, it actually is, it's the best, it's probably the best word, the power. I'm, not, I'm using terms that 
you know, have the same starting word to be clever, I guess. But, but the power, I think, is a really good descriptor here. Um, we see this exemplified, certainly not exclusively in Acts chapter 17, in this, in this sort of passageway from Thessalonica to Berea to Athens. Um, it's certainly not the only place you see God's power on display. But what we see in that, that snapshot and that part of the journey, I, I think, really demonstrates something that is significant for us to, to be reminded of um, as we think about uh, our mission and our ministry in 2018 in greater Atlanta and Woodstock and whatever. I mean, it's, um, I think there's really some really important principles that I want us to kind of focus in on. And we see this, uh, I think, demonstrated prominently in this section in Acts chapter 17, where they, they start in Thessalonica, move to Berea, and then, and then end up in Athens, and Paul ends up in Athens, and you have this, this uh, encounter that's well-known, his, his time with the philosophers there uh, in Athens. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that. <clears throat> Just to give you an idea of the, of the area we're talking about, though, remind you, you have this region, uh, the, the Macedonian call takes them uh, across the Aegean Sea over into Macedonia, and you see the, the trail that they go there. But this is now the time where they go to this area of Thessalonica and Berea, which are in proximity to one another. And then we'll see that the Apostle Paul leaves uh, Berea and, and leaves Timothy and Silas behind and goes to Athens. And he's in Athens by himself for a brief period of time. So that's the, that's the, the territory that we're talking about. So when we think of this idea of the power of, of this, this journey, the power of this mission... Um, I think it's really important for us to kind of understand the larger context of all of this. You have, in fact, let's turn to Acts chapter 17 and get this sort of settled in our minds. Acts chapter 17. I think that that this particular section, in many ways, it it serves as a, a very helpful um, snapshot of what Paul's ministry looked like in every place. I mean, it gives you sort of all the, all the key characteristics of Paul's experiences. Uh, Paul and his, his team, his, his companion Silas, Barnabas on the first journey and others, what they experienced, what was part and parcel to the ministry and mission of the gospel. And what we should understand is part and parcel of our ministry and mission of the gospel. So this is why I want to kind of spend some time focusing on this. So let's look at Acts chapter 17. And I'm just going to kind of read through it to kind of set this whole scene up in our minds in these various places. Verse 1, now when they had passed through Amphipolis, or Amphipolis, I should say, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, we've heard that before, where he starts off, uh, in, a, in, a, in a Jewish environment in the synagogue, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, for, so for three straight weeks, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them per, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. There's Jason. Seeking to bring them out to the crowd. 
And they would, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers and before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, and they let them go. So this is the first sort of scene here in Thessalonica. And you have some very common characteristics that I think is, is worth highlighting. Just to be thinking about how, I want, what, as we kind of go through this, be thinking about what Paul did and what the response was and then what happened next. So that's kind of the idea that I want us to kind of get in our minds. So let's go on to Berea. The brothers, verse uh, 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. We've seen this happen before where they have to kind of get out of town because the, the heat is picking up. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue again, as was the custom. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica, so they're the Jews from Thessalonica, still worked up, coming to Berea. When they learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So now we have Paul in Athens. Now when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be preaching a foreign, of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. 
So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius of the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So you have this, this, this path from Thessalonica to Berea to Athens. And though you have what are very distinct experiences along this path, you have something that is very standard and very common. And that's what I refer to as the power on this mission. And if you just think of what Paul wrote in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. This is the power that we're talking about. And I think that this is a great sort of snapshot where the Apostle Paul is going in to these different cities and he's encountering very different but not so different kinds of experiences. And, he's, and his approach is in some ways different, but in the most fundamental way, it's the same across the board. And I want to just kind of talk about that for a moment. When you think about what he experienced in Thessalonica, you have there this example of him going into the synagogues, as was his custom, and then he begins to expand that conversation out beyond the synagogues. And you have there that some who believe, uh, among them Jews, among them also devout Greeks, and even some who were not devout Greeks, those devout Greeks being God-fearers, those who were sort of monotheistic uh, uh, Gentiles. And then you have some who were pantheistic, you know, idol-worshiping you know, Greeks who came to faith in Christ. In other words, in that environment, you had this collection of people that was common for him to experience, especially when he went to any city where there was a synagogue and a, and a population of Jewish people. You would have this experience of the gospel being presented to everyone, and the response in every case is belief, inquiry, rejection, hostility, over and over and over again. The thing that's consistent... So, so knowing that that's going to be the response, you can, you can actually kind of prepare your mind and your heart and your resolve for one of those responses in any of our gospel endeavor. It's either going to be receptivity to the message according to God's sovereign purpose. It's going to be the possibility of inquisitive interest, curiosity for who knows what reason at any given point. We don't necessarily know all the time. Or it could be just rejection. Or it could be actual out-and-out hostility. That's what you can kind of count on. But the message of the gospel, Paul would reiterate to us, that is where the power is. He says it over and over again. He says it also in, in Corinthians, to the Corinthians. I didn't come to you with cleverness of speech, but in a demonstration of God's power. I claim to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. To these Corinthian people who had this this admiration for all things, you know, rational, secular, philosophical wisdom in that context in 1 Corinthians. So you see this example of the consistency of of the gospel with a recognition that the response is going to be what the response is going to be, and it's going to be one of these few options. Interestingly enough, he goes to Berea, and he encounters... Jews in that environment, who Luke records and, and characterizes as more noble than those in Thessalonica, because as he reasoned with them from the scriptures, as he did in Thessalonica, they sought out the scriptures to actually see if these things were so. 
So it's attributed to them as being noble. Now, think about this for a second. Think about the, to the contrast between these two experiences or these two environments, and then bring that into our sort of our modern context. Is it not indeed, indeed true that, and I, I don't have any statistics on this that I can point to, but I mean, I'm just kind of going sort of in, with a, a little bit of a, an instinct here. Is it not indeed true that probably, you know, eight or nine times out of ten, if you and I are seeking to evangelize someone who is demonstrating not just, um, not just a disinterest, but an actual bit of hostility to the message, um, and you are seeking to convey to them what one commentator I read calls revelational truth, you know, not, not sort of philosophical, you know, convincing arguments, but actually you're seeking to convey to them the truth of God's word and the power of the gospel. Is it not indeed common in those kinds of encounters for, for that kind of, of um, communication to be met with a rejection of your, your source material, a rejection of the authoritative nature of God's word? A rejection of, of Scripture being a valid reference point to, for the sake of argumentation. And yet, is it not indeed also true that that's what I'm getting to nine times out of ten, maybe ten times out of ten, I don't know what the statistics are, but quite frequently, those who are very quick to discount the authority, the veracity, the historicity of Scripture have really never read it. They really don't even know what it is they speak of. They, they, really, they really have heard talking points. They've, they've read some article somewhere written by some atheist that has discounted you know, the veracity of Scripture, but they've never, they've never read it themselves. So you have this, this, this vivid contrast in the Bereans where they were presented claims about the gospel taken from the Old Testament, certainly the Apostle Paul's drawing from the Old Testament to instruct these Jews, and what do they do? But they search the scriptures to see if these things are so. So Luke is holding up for us what is this very uncommon exception amongst people who are presented with the truth claims of the gospel from scripture. Many, many people who re- respond with hostility are responding not out of a sense of, of genuine interest in, in understanding truth. They're not responding out of a concern for what is actually right or true or you know, objectively verifiable. They're responding, as Paul talks about in Romans, out of the suppression of the truth and unrighteousness. And they're responding out of, out of really a, a wicked rejection of God himself and exchanging the creator for created things, basically. That's, that, that's what, where that's coming from. And we need to be reminded of that. See, what oftentimes happens, I think, is that believers get caught up in, in I think, just man-centered thinking about the nature of gospel witness to where we, and we justify or rationalize our augmentation of gospel witness to fit some kind of environment or some kind of you know, perspective that we're confronting. Uh, we, we basically um, think that we're more clever than we really are in those kinds of discussions. Mm-hmm. We, 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 we give too much credit to our powers of persuasion. And I'm just saying that what you see here is you see no misplacement of where the real power lies. 
The Apostle Paul was very, very clear on his understanding that the power does not lie in my persuasive craftiness. It does not lie in my vast knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. The gospel is the power of God into salvation was his driving principle, his driving belief. And you see this exhibited. When he gets to Berea, obviously we see this great response of the Bereans, and we don't necessarily you know, know how many of them believe, but you see this testimony that a great many is, is the term, is, is a, a great, wonderful response of belief in Berea. Um, some references I read said that a pretty large, there was a pretty large Jewish population there. And so this is, this is an unusual response, but notice <clears throat> that this response <clears throat> of belief and faith and trust in Christ that came out of a sincere and genuine effort to search the scriptures to see if this thing were so was a response of great belief. In other words, giving testimony to anyone who, who is prompted by the Spirit of God to search the scriptures will be compelled by the overwhelming veracity and power of the scriptures as a testimony to the reality of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. Then you get to Athens, and you see, this is, this is where the opportunity for the Apostle Paul to go rogue would, would have happened here. Athens is this, this city of idols. You have all these references of people talking about Athens. Uh, uh, Petronius, a first century Roman courtier in the house of uh, the Emperor Nero. So, I mean, this, this is a man who basically hung out in, in Nero's court. He said that uh, Athens was, a, it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. That's how he described Athens. Uh, Pausanias, a well-known Greek geographer from the 2nd century, said that there were more images in Athens than all the rest of Greece combined. This is a man who traveled all over Greece and, and really wrote uh, geography work around, about Greece. And that was his, his testimony about Athens, that of all the places that he went, Athens had more images uh, than all of Greece combined. And then Xenophon, an ancient Greek philosopher and historian, and he was a student of Socrates. So this goes back you know, 300 years, three to 400 years before this particular time in the first century. He said that the city was an altar, a votive offering to the gods. So when, when it says that Paul saw all the idols and his spirit was provoked in him, we're talking about a place that was overwhelmingly populated by images of idol worship beyond what he had experienced in any other city. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that idol worship, he'd already, I mean, that was not uncommon. I mean, you have the example, for example, uh, when, he's in, uh, when they're in Ephesus, and uh, you have Demetrius in Ephesus, who is, uh, he, he made, he, his business was to make, to fashion, you know, images of, of um, Artemis, the, 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 the patron god of Ephesus, and sell them. His business was to sell these little trinkets, these little, these little, you know, I guess replicas of, of, the, of the goddess Artemis. And there was a big temple to Artemis in Ephesus. It's one of the eighth wonders of the world. It's a very significant part of that history of that, that city. And the, he started a big riot because the evangelistic witness in Ephesus was affecting his business. So the, the idea of idol worship and false gods and images of false gods was not uncommon. Um, you have in First Thessalonians description of, of the idolatry in Thessalonica even. So he had just come from Thessalonica. But when he gets to Athens, it's overwhelming. So you, you have to know that we're talking about this overwhelming presence of, of, um, of, of 
images and statues and, and places of worship and idols, uh, man-made idols of pantheism and, and idolatry. And it provoked him. And he has this encounter. Well, another, another statement, John Calvin, he says, It's the city which was a mansion house of wisdom, the fountain of all arts, the mother of humanity, and it did exceed all others in blindness and madness. So you have this, this, this central place of, of uh, the, sort of the intellectual elite, the, the wisdom of the ages you know, flowing out of Athens. You go back to all the, the, the origins of, of philosophy and, 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 and thought, and that's where it was sort of centralized at that point. Um, and yet it was a city of madness, as Calvin describes it. So the Apostle Paul is confronted by these Greek, uh, these uh, Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, which was basically the predominant uh, sort of philosophical streams of that day. And he was confronted by them. And so here he is in this city that is just by very nature of its architecture and what's all around. This is the place where you're talking about secularism defined. This, this, is, this is where secular people are. This is, this is, these are people that would not have any connection with or understanding of truth from Scripture. None. And so, what do you do? What do you say to these people? How do you communicate the message of the gospel? And in our day and time, and in all th- even throughout church history, there has been this tendency to adopt a, a, an, um, an approach to this, that is, at its core, it's, it's a, it, it lacks a true understanding of, of sort of biblical anthropology, of who man is in his fallen nature. Um, it, it, basically, it basically grants too much to the unbelieving mind and what they can actually grasp or understand or, or wrestle with. Um, and what often happens is in those kinds of encounters, we're looking for some point of contact, some point where we can say where there's common ground. Oftentimes, it's, uh, it's characterized as neutral ground. So here we are as God's people who we know ourselves, and of course the Apostle Paul would know it. I mean, after all, his conversion experience resulted in him being thrown from a horse so he, and going blind. So he vividly remembers that he was going one direction with the intent of doing something that was to the antithesis of the will of God, and his conversion experience was dramatic. So he understands that he was not in a frame of mind to come to faith in Christ, that he was saved out of his deadness and his rebellion in a dramatic way. But all of us recognize that who are truly believers. We all recognize that we were, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We were at, at enmity with God, and so we were saved out of that. And so what we're going to do then is we're going to go to other people who are in that condition and think that somehow, philosophically, intellectually, we can establish some common ground. I'm not talking about relationship ground. I'm not saying, you know, you know what do you like to do in your spare time? I'm not talking about having rapport over sort of things that are of, of interest that you can establish some relationship connections with. I'm talking about fundamental belief and sort of philosophical underpinnings for your belief and that kind of thing, what your, what your sources of authority are for what you believe. We, we decide that we're going to, we, we, can't, we can't go at that conversation from the standpoint of revelational truth, from the standpoint of scripture, because they won't really understand it. So we've got to come at this from some other way. And maybe if we use our power of reason, or maybe we just talk about 
some things from history or archaeology or whatever, then maybe that'll be convincing enough to them that, that they'll, you know, they'll rationally adopt a belief in the gospel. Now, I'm not saying we don't use points of evidence to affirm the message of the gospel, to support the truth of the gospel, the believability of the scriptures, the historicity of the scriptures. I'm not saying you don't bring those, those points of proof or evidence into the discussion, but it's where our starting point is to think that we somehow have this neutral ground between us and an unbelieving mind, an unbelieving heart. And we, we begin to sort of craft our witness or our witnessing strategy around where they are and see if we can somehow get over into their way of thinking and then bring them over to the gospel. And the reality is, is that the gospel is the power of God into salvation to anyone who believes. That, they need to be get, taken from the domain of darkness to the domain of light. And it's the gospel that does that. And you see this ex, uh, exemplified for us in Athens because they were saying that you're, you're preaching strange deities because he was talking about the resurrection of Christ. So his, his effort to talk to these Epicureans who had one sort of version of, of, of um, understanding of what the purpose of life is and the Stoics who had a whole different understanding of what the purpose of life was and these you know, developed philosophical schools of thought, he didn't seek to uh, convince them that, you know what, um, let me kind of appeal to your Stoicism or let me appeal to your Epicureanism in some way and see if I can then sort of draw you in and lure you into Christianity in some intellectual approach. It was the gospel that was the power of God to salvation. He begins by talking about this unknown God. I'll kind of quickly move through this and maybe we can spend some more time next week. But he, he talks about, he, he does establish a, a, a relational reference point when he cites this unknown God. He says, I see that you're very religious because I see that you have this altar, this unknown God. And, and he, he doesn't do that to say that, that you have been worshiping the true and only God because I see this altar to this unknown God. I mean, he goes and refutes that as a reality later on when he says, God is not made by man with human hands. He doesn't dwell in temples made by men. So certainly he doesn't dwell in a structure that you've built and put to an unknown God on there. He begins by saying, this God, he, he's basically highlighting the fact that you, what you don't know, I do know. The God that you don't know, that you, you can't relate to, I, I'm here to present to you because I do know him. He's highlighting that to establish a point of communication relationship, but not as a way to identify with their pantheism. He's not saying that, you know, you have in all of your pantheon, you have all these idols to all these different contrived gods, but then you have this one idol that's to the unknown God, and that's the real God. That's not, that's not at all what he's saying. He's saying, what you don't know, what you worship in ignorance, I'm here to present to you in truth. I'm here to tell you about the true and living God. And that's where he goes with it. And he starts his, his evangelism, if you will, by presenting to them basically a doctrine of God as creator. In verses 24 to 25, he declares to them, now again, he's not doing the same thing that he did with the Jews in the synagogues where he would reason with them from the Old Testament scriptures. These are people that wouldn't have copies of, uh, you know, of the Torah in their temples. You know? they, they wouldn't have a, that wouldn't be a, 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 um, 
a source that they would have, uh, it would be a reference point that they could relate to. But what he did do is he presented truth from the scriptures to them, clearly, unambiguously. And he went straight at their, their idolatry and their, their, the pantheon of gods that they worshipped by talking about the true creator of the world who is transcendent, who is above all things, who is independent of his creation, who doesn't need anything, he's not dependent upon anything. And this also conflicts directly with the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicurean idea that the world happened by chance, he's saying, no, that's not how the world came to be. God created the world and everything in it. And the Stoic idea that, God, that the gods didn't care for men or their problems, that's not true either. So he's going right at their false belief system with revelational truth. He's basically teaching them starting from Genesis. And even though he doesn't make a reference to Scripture, it is considered to be references to Scripture uh, indirectly or truth of Scripture, revelational truth from Scripture. And he goes from there to the doctrine of man. Since God is the creator, he is particularly the creator of mankind. So not only did he make the world, but he also made you. He has ownership over you. You are all derived from a common ancestor. This completely contradicted the Greek mindset of of their superiority as a race, a people, that that, that, that just gets obliterated by the truth of, of God as creator of man. And he also discloses to them that God has ordained man's earthly abode, that God is sovereign even over their very existence, um, over their very being, that God is sovereign. And then he goes on to talk about salvation in Christ. And he speaks of the resurrection again, which wasn't the first time, because we know that that's what led him to be in this position in the first place, communicating this message. The point in all this is that when we think about our mission endeavors, our ministry endeavors, our gospel witness endeavors, um, especially in an environment, in an environment that we're living in, I mean, is it not indeed true that Uh, we have people that are more than willing to stir up, just in the same way that the Jews stirred up the rabble, the Greek, you know, rabble against these witnesses of the gospel, not even taking into account what it is they're testifying to, the validity of their message, not thinking about what is true or what is objectively true or what can be validated from any kind of reliable source material, it's stirring up to a mob mentality. Now think about what what we're experiencing even in our day and time. People are willing to assemble and to lash out and even get physically violent, not because ideas are, are being directly thought through and countered, or even that their particular ideas are being necessarily threatened. It's a complete reaction to out of man's fallenness that he's desiring to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And anything that would come at that is, even though it's not an overt threat to them of violence, it is a threat that they see it as a threat to them. So you have this mob mentality and stirring up the crowds and, and seeking to, to tamp down the gospel that you see there even in Thessalonica. This, this message of the gospel, though, is just communicated clearly over and over and over again. 
Because man, apart from the saving message of Jesus Christ, has no hope. What else do we proclaim? Now, the Apostle Paul certainly used wisdom in his communication of the message. He didn't say, you know, you remember from Genesis chapter 1, they would not have, that would be no reference point to them. He just began to tell them what is true from Genesis about God and so forth and so on. So I just think this is a great testimony for us as we look at this part of the missionary journey that we see that the, the power that we are to be walking in in our evangelistic witness is not the power of our communication abilities or the cleverness of our form, formulating arguments, but it's the power of the gospel itself to save. And what we also need to remember is that when we present the gospel, there will be those who will believe. And there will be those who might express interest. There will be those who will be completely disinterested, might mock, might ridicule, might say that's stupid. And then there might be those who are out and out hostile to our message. But the message is not different to any of those groups. It's the same. And we need to be prepared for that. And we need to be committed to that, that enterprise. Any final thoughts or questions before we close in prayer? I know that I kind of went off and didn't give you a chance to participate, so I apologize. Yes? What do you say to somebody who, when you're explaining the gospel and all of a sudden they come at you or they get extremely hostile? I mean, I, you're asking me what have I said or what should I say? Because those are, might be two different answers. Um, I, I think that I think that one of the greatest um, challenges for us as believers, um, and one of the, probably the more common failure points for us in our evangelistic efforts, is to be drawn in to a debate with someone that quickly becomes more about us than it is about the gospel. And so I would say that you have to be very aware of your own heart and how that provocation or that attack is making you feel in that moment. And if you feel like your ire is getting worked up and it's becoming about you and about you being attacked by them or about you wanting to overcome their argument with your argument, then you might need to just say, let's take a break and we'll talk about this another time. Because what, what, what oftentimes happens is that we get drawn into our own sin and, and we, we, we become so adamant about winning an argument or, 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 or this, this faith of ours is precious to us, too. I mean, we, we love Christ and we love the gospel and, we, and we're so overwhelmed by our own salvation and what God has wrought in our hearts and we want other people. So there's all kinds of things going on there, but I think we have to be really, really discerning in those moments about not returning evil for evil and willing to be reviled and willing to be rejected willing to walk away with them believing that they've completely defeated you and, and all that, because it's really not about you and it's not about me. It's about the gospel. It's about Christ. And, and only, only God, by His Spirit, can open up a heart to, to faith. And so I, 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 that, to me, is, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of what I think about when I think about that. So, Okay, uh, I guess I should pray for us and we should move on.